um, we are beginning our, our sermon series uh, entitled The Biblical Marriage, Our Biblical Family. And I'll be focusing today on the biblical marriage, God's blueprint for marriage. Um, if you would, open your, your Bibles to the book of Genesis, and we'll be looking at chapter 2. Verses 18 through 25. Genesis 2, 18 through 25. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of, the, of heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that, that was his name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Father God, we, we humbly come before you this morning. There is so much to be said about this topic. So little time to say it this morning. But Lord, I pray that you know our hearts. You know this morning what we need to hear. And that is what I ask, Lord. That we would hear from you. God, reveal to us areas in our lives this morning where we are not, where we are falling short. Convict us of sins. Break us, Lord. Lead us to repentance. If there be anybody here this morning that does not know you, I pray that you would convict them of that. And that you would lead them to a saving knowledge of Christ. Thank you for this undeserved opportunity to come before your people this morning and proclaim your word. Lord, be glorified in this time. We ask and we pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, I think there is, um, I think at least here at this church, there's a bit of a reluctancy maybe to, to do a sermon series on marriage um, for a couple reasons. One is, um, it is a touchy subject, and uh, you, know, you want to be careful of how you address it. But uh, I think another main reason is some of us have come from big mainstream churches, where it seemed like every other month there was a sermon series on five ways to make your marriage better. Um, and then the next month it was five ways to have a better family. Um, so... A uh, very pragmatic sermon series, and it always seemed to be focused on marriage and family. So, you know, we here have always felt that the gospel, um, you know, addresses these things in every aspect of our lives. Um, but it was a couple months ago, this Bruce and I had um, knew that Phil was going to be gone for the most of the month of July, and we began discussing what we wanted to talk about. and. And uh, I, without a doubt, feel that the Lord pressed it on both of our hearts to, to talk about this, the biblical family. Um, so <clears throat> another reluctancy is also that not everybody that is listening to this message now is married or is going to be married or is even interested in marriage. Um, so there can be a a feeling as though maybe this sermon series doesn't apply to me. Uh, but let me encourage you that no matter what your status is when it comes to marriage, it is imperative that we as a church, today more than ever, 
stand firm on what the Word of God plainly teaches on this subject. I know of no other biblical subject today that is under more attack than God's design for marriage and the family. I mean, think about it. What, when you think of a hot-button topic today, is this not at one of the front lines? When you think of all the issues surrounding our culture, it seems to stem from this question of, of marriage and family. Satan's unrelenting pursuit to disrupt, to distort, to corrupt, dismantle, and redefine marriage have been his goal from the beginning. And why is that? Because of all institutes that God could have started with, it's interesting that he starts the human race off with the institute of marriage. He doesn't start it off with the institute of, of government or of a community or school or even a church. God begins humanity off with the institution of marriage. And this is before the fall, so it's part of his original design. It is from this institution that all others flow from. So Satan is not stupid. If you want to corrupt society, if you want to corrupt government, if you want to corrupt schools, if you want to corrupt a culture, if you want to corrupt a nation, start at the family. Start with marriage and everything else will follow. One needs to not worry about corrupting society. Corrupt marriage, the idea of marriage, the definition of God, God's definition of marriage, everything else will crumble. And are we seeing this today? The, our governments are doing all that it can to redefine what constitutes as, as marriage. Our schools are indoctrinating our children at a young age to embrace the idea of multiple genders and new sexual norms. Society uh, demands not only the toleration, not only the acceptance, but the celebration of homosexuality. There is no doubt that society aims to restructure God's design in any way it can. With the prominence of, of pornography and, and the Playboy philosophy, the LGBTQ agendas, entertainment mediums, and, and Hollywood influence, and marriage substitutes, there is no greater time for we who are the church to take a uh, strong stand and firm stand on the word of God and what it proclaims when uh, it comes to the institution of marriage. Today I would like for us to look at the beginning because this is where we get the origin of marriage. It is not from society. It's not a man-made uh, institution. It was from God. And we have to start at the origin because like a road sign, if you start in a different direction or you start with a, a uh, sign pointing you in the wrong direction, you only get further from the understanding of what it is. Today, we'll see that marriage finds its origin with God, and it's because God is the originator of marriage. It is he and he alone that gets to define it. Today, I would like for us to see three aspects to marriage in our passage this morning. God's purpose for marriage, God's sovereignty in marriage, and God's design for marriage. So, um, hopefully we're there at, in Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make for him a helper fit for him. Now, just so you know, chapter 2 is kind of a, a greater detail recap of what's going on, what happened in chapter 1. <clears throat> in the midst of God's good creation, there comes a point where something is not good. Now, this doesn't mean that it was sinful or evil, but... It was not good. It was incomplete. It was lacking in something. Um, it was not good that man be alone. Uh, even the secular world will uh, corroborate with this. You know, what is one of the most severe punishments that you can have in a prison? Is it not solitary confinement? 
It literally is unhealthy and not good for us to be alone. God created man in his own image, Genesis 1.26, and God is a relational being. Even before anything existed, God was in perfect eternal relationship with the Son and the Spirit. We likewise reflect our Creator in this aspect and are relational creatures that long for that same kind of interaction. Here we see the most basic fundamental purpose for marriage, and that is of companionship. The purpose for marriage is to overcome that which is lacking in man alone. Now, of course, God does everything for his glory, and, and the intimate companionship that is intended to be shared between a husband and a wife certainly accomplishes this. It reflects our God in his triune state. So the purpose of marriage, then, is companionship, to defeat loneliness. Now, I know that this seems all very basic and straightforward, but we must understand this truth and know that when two people make their wedding vows, they are vowing to provide companionship to one another for the rest of their lives. Now, notice I said provide companionship, not receive companionship. And that's something that we need to, to take notice of. So many people today enter into marriage to to get, to receive. You think of common reasons as why most people give to why they're getting married. He makes me happy, or, or he makes me laugh, or she makes me feel good about myself. Sounds sweet, but completely self-centered. And it's no wonder why many marriages end in divorce. Because when the basis of your marriage is they make me happy, make me laugh, make me feel good about myself. When the basis of your marriage is that, sorry to say, that person is not always going to make you happy. That person is not always going to make you laugh. And when that goes, the whole basis and foundation for one's marriage is gone. We see here that marriage comes about in order for a, a man and woman to selflessly meet the needs of their spouse. And yes, it is that which builds up their spouse. We don't marry only to receive and get. And unfortunately, I think that's a, a primary concern in most marriages today. And we'll go into that a little bit later. Now, despite the fact that marriage is to combat loneliness, it is a sad fact that many marriages are lonely. As a basic, um, as a basic of, a, of a concept, this is, many seem to struggle with it. Everything in this world is striving for our attention. We have children, we have family, we have jobs, we have friends, we have hobbies, we have television, entertainment, we have these handy-dandy things. And I'll tell you something right now. Some of us have a closer companionship with our phones than we do with our spouses. We're always at its beck and call. We always want to be in the same room with it. We go to bed with it. We wake up to it. It's literally attached to some of your guys' hips. Someone's taking off their hip thing right now. <laughs> True companionship is more than just spending time around one another. True companionship is about sharing one another's life with each other. Which brings us to the second statement that God makes. This companionship that God is to make for Adam is to be what? She's to be a helper fit for him or suitable, some, some translations might, you guys' translation might have, it says suitable for him. The, the Hebrew word for helper, azer, literally means aid. This woman, this companion, is to aid Adam. 
God had placed Adam in the garden to tend and keep it, Genesis 2.15. Eve is given as his companion to help or aid in accomplishing this. Now, I'm not going to go too far into this because God willing will address this role in, in two weeks. But Adam was to work for God by tending and keeping the garden. And she was to work for the Lord by assisting her husband in this task. In our culture today, this is the most scandalous, scandalous thing that I could say. Today's culture teaches that a woman should seek her own careers, dreams, and self-fulfillment. And this, however, goes against God's design for marriage. Now, I'm not saying that a woman cannot have a career, cannot have goals, cannot have dreams. <clears throat> but she must first and foremost be a companion that is meeting and is aiding in the work of the Lord with her husband. This is how true companionship is accomplished, by the two being unified in this work toward the common goal. Too many marriages today, you have two separate, you have the wife kind of doing her thing and, and pursuing her goal and her career. We have the husband pursuing his goal and her career, and they just come to, they're more like roommates than anything. This was not God's design for marriage. Verse 19 goes on to say, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to the beasts of every field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now here Adam is exercising, exercising his God-given authority over creation by naming all these animals. But this action by God seems somewhat weird, doesn't it? Not good for man to be alone. And then he parades all the animals in front of Adam and says, uh, name them. And we can read this and maybe kind of think in our own human terms that maybe God was sitting there saying, okay, I'm going to try to figure out this whole companion thing for Adam. Let's try the animals. Ah, oh, it's not working. Okay. You know, dog, maybe man's best friend. No, no. Uh, you know, and, and that's not the case. God knew exactly the type of companion that Adam needed. God knew what he needed, but Adam did not. Adam did not. As Adam is naming these animals, he is no doubt recognizing the distinction of males and females that are going by. And it is through this process God was calling attention to the paired animals to make Adam aware of that which was lacking in him. You think about it, you're, you're seeing these animals go by and you're seeing, you know, the, the different lion, the lioness, and, and Mr. and Mrs. Hippopotamus going by. And you're, you're thinking to yourself, how come I don't have someone that corresponds to me in the same way? This is something like this, but not with them. Something like that, that that's similar but different. I, I need someone, I need something that corresponds to me, that is relatable to me. And he is recognizing that in these groups and pairs of animals. You know, and, and Adam didn't need just, just a housewife. He didn't need someone just to be another income provider, just a child bearer, just something uh, to keep him company like a pet. Nor did he need just something to assist him in a work like an ox. What Adam needed was a companion that was comparable to him, a companion that was relatable to him, a companion that could assist him in fulfilling God's command to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. He needed a partner in the truest sense. We move to verse 21. It says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Some other manuscripts give greater detail of this account. God tells Adam, I'm going to create for you the most perfect companion imaginable. The greatest of all my creations. 
But Adam, that's going to cost you an arm and a leg. Adam says, what can I get for a rib? <laughs> I think that's the Apocrypha. I don't, I'm not sure. We're doing a marriage series. There's going to be some jokes, right? <laughs> Just kidding. My wife's looking at me like, you're funny. You are funny. God causes a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. Uh, commentators all just say that this may be nothing more than how we put someone to sleep before any major surgery. Um, uh, pain was not necessarily absent before the fall, but that's what I mean. most commentators say. Um, I think there might be another little reason, but we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, now, ribs here in Hebrew, selah, T-S-E-L-A, not S-E-L-A-H, is most commonly tra- translated as side. Usually when we see this word, we're always, we just think that God took a, a bone out of, uh, a rib bone out of Adam. Um, but when this word is translated, it, it can mean just the side, piece of flesh. And, and it can also be translated as rib as well. But... Um, we see in, in verse 23 that that woman was made flesh of flesh and bone and bone. So um, this can be translated as God took a part of his side, took, took part of Adam's side, and created woman with it. Um, the Apostle Paul talks about this. He says, man was not made from woman, but woman from man, 1 Corinthians 11:8. So this is more than just God making a female for Adam to mate with like animals. Every other creature... This is something that kind of struck me. I, I knew this, but it just really didn't strike me until I studied it. Every other creature on this earth was made from dust. It is only woman that is made from uh, a man, made from not from dust. Um, man, unlike the animals, man was, was created and, and made from, from dust. That's why a lot of us guys are dirtbags. The Apostle Paul Kravitz, I just came up with that. Um, <laughs> the Apostle Paul Kravitz this when he, when he says, oh, I'm sorry, I already talked about that. Um, <laughs> that's why you don't put jokes in there. Get you thrown off. Um, but every other creature in this world was made from the dust, uh, except for woman. And this reveals the truly uniqueness of the husband and wife relationship. God did not form for Adam a best friend. A, a golfing buddy, you know. He didn't. He didn't form for him a, a country club, a men's club. He didn't form for him a, a mother, a father, a sister, a brother. He didn't form for him another man. It was a woman that perfectly compliments him and likewise a man that perfectly compliments a woman this is god's design this is why homosexuality is a grievous sin it goes against god's design goes against our nature and is not an accurate portrayal of god to the rest of creation god creates from man a relational companion who is the same yet different and takes on a different role. And think about the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit are the same, same essence, but yet distinct and different in their roles and character. The whole LGBTQ community goes against and mars this image of their creator. And yet, sadly, churches are are beginning to bend the knee to their agenda. Now, here's what I want us to see here. Point number two of of all of this. We saw that God's purpose for marriage is companionship. Now we're going to see God's sovereignty in marriage. Throughout this part here, I wanted to see in these last two verses, when we examine verses 21 and 22, who is it that is the main character? of these verses. Is it not God? 
Who is it that does the designing? Who is it that does the building? Who is it that does the bringing together of these two? God is. God is. It is not man that is at the center stage of marriage, but it is God. It is God that joins together a husband and a wife. We just got uh, done going through the doctrines of grace, which highlights what? God's sovereignty. Do we think that God's sovereignty stops just at our salvation? No. It penetrates every aspect of our lives, including our marriages, including our spouses. Jesus says concerning marriage, Matthew 9, 16, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Adam has nothing to do with bringing about Eve. He's not even conscious when it's going on. It is God who sovereignly creates woman and joins her to man. And I think, I mean, if you think about your marriages, when I think about how the Lord brought Lily and I together, I'm not a big person on doing testimonies, but it highlights my point. You know, I was working at Modesto Applebee's. This is BC kind of time, and, and um, I got caught having a beer on my break. It's a big no-no. And I got fired. And I stubbornly fought it and fought it and fought it. And finally, I was like the, you know, the, the widow with the judge. You know, that Finally, my district manager said, fine, I'll give you a job back. But you cannot work at the Modesto um, restaurant. You have to pick another restaurant. We have Manteca. We have um, Turlock. I was like, said, we are opening one in Riverbank if you're willing to wait. I'm willing to wait. And it is there that I met Lily. It was there that God brought us together in a, in a very close friendship and brought us together in our marriage. And it was through that that God brought her to a saving knowledge of Christ. It was through that that we started going back to church. It was God sovereignly using my stupid, sinful decision and bringing it about to now you have someone singing for you every Sunday morning here at church. You guys get to benefit from God's sovereignty in my marriage. But it was, I mean, look, and think about your own marriages and how God brought you together. And, and when you think about, you just look back and say, oh my gosh, I couldn't see it, but God was in the midst of all of that. And maybe God was in the midst of, of bringing you together with someone who somehow would bring you to a saving knowledge of Christ, one way or another, meeting somebody else through friendships and whatever family. Uh, you could trace it back to God using this person, using your marriage or somebody within that marriage um, family who brought you to a saving knowledge of Christ. God sovereignly is sovereign over all things, including our marriages. Building a, upon this idea of sovereignty in marriage, notice that God does not ask Adam what he's looking for in a wife. It's not like weird science, you know, when they're building, you know, the perfect woman and they're inputting all this stuff and... Now, undoubtedly, we think we, we know what we want in a spouse, right? But it is only God that knows what we really need. <clears throat> if it were up to us, we would choose characteristics that cater specifically to our wants and our desires and our felt needs. But wouldn't that be better? Wouldn't it be better to have a spouse that agreed with me with everything that I agreed with that I liked who was more like me in, in every way shape and form would that not be easier 
Not when you get to know yourself, right? But why does he do this? He, he puts us with someone who sometimes is the opposite of us in a lot of ways. Why does God do that? It's because God is not concerned with your ease and comfort in this life. What he's concerned with is your sanctification. And it's because of this that he will use the most important human relationships in our lives to accomplish it. Since marriage is the closest of all relationships, it provides the greatest opportunity for the process of sanctification. In his sovereignty, God will place you with someone that will try your patience at times. Maybe a lot of times. God will place you with someone who will mess up. That will teach you to be patient. That will teach you to be forgiving. That will teach you to show grace. He will place you with someone that does not necessarily meet all the conditions that you might learn to love unconditionally. And through this process, God forms in you that which is lacking, just as in Adam. And he conforms you to the image of Christ that you may better bear his image here on earth as husband and wife. Paul Tripp writes, when you begin to celebrate the sovereignty of God and how he formed you and your spouse together for his glory and your good, you quit being irritated by your differences and start celebrating how your life has been enhanced by them. End quote. Listen to me. No matter what your struggles are, no matter what you're going through, no matter what pains and hurts you're facing right now in your marriage or just in life in general, I can offer you no greater comfort than this fact. God is sovereign in the midst of it. You can rest in his sovereignty. You can rest in his sovereign plan. It is the power and sovereignty of God that provides hope in whatever situation you find yourself and your marriage in. And this applies to us who are not married, who are single, who long for marriage. You can find rest and hope in the sovereignty of God. Verse 23 says, Then man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Now, here we're going to examine the design for marriage. We looked at the purpose for marriage. We looked at God's sovereignty in marriage. Now we're going to look at God's design for marriage. After the long duty of naming all the animals and not seeing any fit for him, Adam sees a woman, uh, name not given yet, and basically says, finally, this is it. Adam here is doing something more than just stating a fact of bone in my bone and flesh in my flesh. He's actually conducting some poetry. The language is somewhat po poetic in Hebrew, um, which sounds cliche, but since he's the first to do it, it was original. This terminology would later be used to describe family, um, Genesis 29, 14, Jacob and Laban, Judges 9, 2. Um, but, you know, and we kind of use the same kind of terminology today. We, we say, you know, blood is thicker than wine or, you know, flesh of my flesh. I don't say that, but I'm sure someone does. So Adam is describing the closeness of the relationship between he and this woman. But he's doing actually something a little bit more. The only other time this phrase is used in the same type of context, it is in 2 Samuel 5, 1 through 3. Let's go ahead and turn there. 2 Samuel 5, 2 Samuel 5, 1 through 3. <clears throat> it says, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought, and brought in Israel. 
And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people of Israel and shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king of Hebron and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord and they anointed David king over Israel. What is happening here? It's David's coronation. And Israel is saying, you are bone. Saul was, and, uh, was from Israel as well. But what Israel is saying to King David, you're bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh. We are committed to you. We're dedicating ourselves to you. You are king. We're your people. You are king. We're your people. We are committing ourselves to you. We are covenanting with you. And that is what Adam is doing here. Uh, <clears throat> he is covenanting with Eve. This is confirmed with the next statement of becoming one flesh. Now, there could be no marriage where there is not first commitment. This indeed is a marriage bond because Adam is committing himself to the woman. Adam then names her woman. Now, don't forget, Adam has been naming animals all day. And in times of antiquity, you would name something um, which corresponded to, to a, a very uh, characteristic of theirs. And for Adam, he names Eve woman, or calls her woman. Um, in, in Hebrew, man is called ish, and woman is called isha. And uh, they don't really have that, actually the same root meaning. Um, it's a little bit different. But the root meaning for isha is soft. I don't know if Adam came up and touched her arm was like, <laughs> Soft. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, that probably wasn't it. But then again, when I sit in a nice chair, leather chair, first thing I do is like, ooh, that's soft. <laughs> Isha. <laughs> I'm going to come up with a chair, a really soft chair. I'm going to call it Isha. But, I mean, who knows? We don't know exactly why he names her Isha, but I, I think the next statement gives a little insight. Um, it says, because she was taken out of man. Uh, typically, the inside of something is, is softer than the outside. Usually, the outside of something, you've got a harder exterior that protects the, the insides of vital things, um, vital organs, things like that. So maybe that's where um, Adam is, why he's calling her soft. He's, he's saying she was taken out from the, the softer part of man. Therefore, you know, she's soft. She's woman. Isha. Now, after stating the relational closeness and committing himself to her, the text proceeds to the covenantal bond of marriage. The next, the next part of the text is not Adam speaking. We've got to remember that. This is uh, the author through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is God speaking, not Adam. So Adam says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And then he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is covenantal language. And it, marriage, without a doubt, is just that, a covenant. Proverbs 2.17, speaking of an adulterous woman, says, You will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with, with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. Uh, by forsaking her companion, this woman forgets the covenant of God. Malachi 2.13-16, it says, and this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with your tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he do this? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So we see that. Through these verses, it is plain to see that marriage is a covenant. And not only that, it is a covenant made before the Lord that is to be lasting until death. Jesus only gives two stipulations for divorce in the New Testament. Adultery and, and abandonment. There's no expiration date on this. There is no, it's not contingent upon one's feelings. In ancient antiquity, what we need to remember 
is the seriousness of what a covenant was. In these ancient times, when two parties came to an agreement, they would take an animal, they would cut it in half, put one side here and one side here, and the two parties that were agreeing would walk between them. And the idea was, they would say, if I don't, may, may God do to me what has been done to this animal if I don't adhere to my end of the bargain. It was very serious. It is the most serious of all agreements. And that is what we do when we marry. It is a covenant made before the Lord. And that is why the covenant of marriage is something that should be taken with the utmost seriousness. Because if you will not hold yourself to the covenant of marriage, God will. The covenant constitutes a leaving of one's father and mother. And it's interesting here that at the time, there is no father and mother. But it was so important to God to make sure that he inputted this here, which reveals to us that the relationship between parent and child is to be temporary. It is to be temporary. And the husband and wife relationship is to be permanent. Now, this, of course, is easier said than done. Many homes today, even Christians' home, where there's a big emphasis on children, can have the priority switch. Both mother or father or, or both or can have um, children become the center of their home. And the home becomes a, a child-centered home. And what happens is when the child grows up, at least for college, you have a husband and wife staring at each other and looking at a stranger. Because their marriage was based and formed around the child. Believe it or not, children are to be second in the relationship of the home. Husband and wife are to be first. And guess what? This is what is best for the child, for your children. They need to grow up in a home where they can daily see the unification of their father and mother. This is opposed to them being raised in an environment where a mother or father both cater to them. You want to have troubles in your marriage? Take your child, pick your child over your spouse. Take their side over your spouse's. Undermine their authority in your child's life. This will also bring about an unrealistic self-centeredness in your child when they look for a spouse. They're going to look for someone who catered to them as their mother and father did. They're going to look for someone who meets the criteria of me. Now, what does this leaving look like? The root word here in the Hebrew is actually forsake. Now, we know that we are to honor and care for our parents, but it does give us this idea of complete breaking away from your parents' authority and rule over your life. The need for this leaving is for the establishment of the husband and wife relationship, this cleaving together, because a husband and wife cannot properly cleave together if they are still cleaving to their parents. And I'm seeing a whole new norm of this today. The new ties of marriage cannot be established unless the old ones are gone. A whole new type of relationship between a parent and a child is then established where they are considered as equals and peers. Many marriages are, have been shipwrecked because of the involvement of parents and, and the lack of leadership of, of a husband to, to make a stand and, and say, no, I'm, I'm siding with my wife here, or, or a wife say, no, this is my husband. It is almost like there's three people in the marriage or four people with the husband, uh, the parents, both mother and father. This leaving involves three levels of exchange. I'm going to go through real quick. There is an ex exchange of a new primary relationship. There's an exchange of authority and exchange of dependence. Your spouse should be your primary relationship. Your spouse should be your primary relationship. This means that they are the one you go to in times of discouragement, even if that discouragement is them. <laughs> um, 
This means that they are the, the ones that you find your support in. They are the ones that you spend your majority of your time with. There is this exchange of relationship. They are your primary relationship. No longer your, your sister, your brother, your buddy, your mother, your father, whoever it be. It is the spouse who is the primary relationship when one gets married. There is also an exchange of authority. Some couples will feel crippled to make decisions due to the disapproval of parents. They still feel like they need their parents' blessing to do anything. And this will quickly cause unnecessary stress in the lives of a married couple. And lastly, there needs to be an exchange of dependence. This means more than just moving out, people. Now, don't get me wrong. Parents are there for sure to help. Um, you know, and they're there to help with, with children, with, with sometimes with finances. Parents are there to help. But you are to break away from being completely dependent upon your parents. A healthy marriage cannot be healthy if one or both spouses are still dependent upon their parents. This duty primarily falls on the shoulders of the husband. And Bruce will, God willing, talk about that next week. When a parent supplements or provides provisions, it will inevitably lead to a feeling of involvement in those decisions. If someone's giving you money, they're probably going to want to feel like they have a say in what that money is going to be used for. Please understand that I'm not saying parents cannot help. You know, I, I know I've, I've gotten so much help from my parents from my, in my life. And, you know, even in the early stages of our marriage, we've had so much support. Um, you know, I became dependent when I was, I think it was almost 19. I moved out on my own. But, man, my mom decorated my whole apartment. <laughs> you know, that Christmas I got pots and pans and a vacuum cleaner, and I was happy about it. I was like, yeah. <clears throat> um, but another area, it's more than just money. Married couples must be dependent of their, or not be dependent upon their family in all areas. And here, here's another area where I see it. I've seen it happen a lot. And that is when parents or when a husband and wife have children and they dump the child off at the grandparents. The grandparents are a co-parent pretty much. Now, again, first 2 years that we had Cohen, you know, my mom and, and Lily's parents, you know, took turns washing them through the week. But it was until we had Carson, maybe that was a godsend from you know, my parents and her parents, you know, Carson's a little handful. Um, <laughs> but we had made the decision that I don't know how we're going to make ends meet. It doesn't make sense on paper, but we're going to be committed to make this investment in our children. And Lily's been a stay-at-home mom since. And guess what? We have never been without. The Lord has always provided, always. But Cameron, we live in California. It's super expensive. I get that. I do. But let me ask you something. If you say, we cannot make it unless my wife works, and my wife can't work unless the parents are watching the kids all the time, how is that any different than being dependent upon your parents for your income? It's the same thing. And I've seen it time and time again where, where Husband and wife drop the child off. If your child or children are spending equal or more time with their grandparents than they are with their parents, that is not okay. And that is a dependence upon your parents. And it is not a proper leaving and proper cleaving. Please understand, I know we were there. I get it. It's hard. 
it's hard to say, make that decision of, of not having that income coming in, of being scared. But trust me, the Lord will provide. Aaron's a testimony to that. Parents, this leaving is a two-way street. Spouses, your, your children, when they get married, they may need your help in this area. Ways you can help is by refusing to get involved in marital disputes, refusing to stick your nose in the business. You can be there as support, but you refuse to take sides. This is what a proper cleaving and coming together as one flesh is. Now our text says, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is the same as cleaving, which in Hebrew translates as pursue hard or a continual pressing together. We would call it like a superglue. Um, it is a weaving of two into one. A husband and wife are to pursue one another and weave their lives so tightly together that their lives become one. This again mimics the Hebrew word for companion, shabir, which means associate, knit together. God's design for marriage is the sharing of everything. Sharing of money, sharing of insights, sufferings, joys, bodies, their hopes, their goals, their direction. It is so intertwined together that the only proper description that it can be called is one flesh, one person. That is what marriage is, a commitment to become a new person with your spouse. That is what marriage is, a commitment to become a new person with your spouse. The modern idea of a husband and wife having separate pursuits, goals, bank accounts, and, and living uh, as their own in his or her own right is contrary to the biblical idea of marriage. Now, this doesn't mean that your spouse is the exact same as you. We covered that. Uh, my arm is not the same as my leg. They serve different functions, but they work together in unison for the whole and good of the body. This is how marriage is to be. What happens to one happens to the other. To hurt one is to hurt yourself. Marriage is coveting before God to permanently become one flesh mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. You know, today we have wedding rings to kind of, you know, have that symbol of that coming together one flesh. But sex was the physical expression of what was happening mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. It was the coming together of one flesh. And it is why that God strictly forbids sex outside of marriage. It, it distorts what it was meant for. Sex is for the marriage bed alone, and, and it is no surprise when we think about it. When you're not connecting to your spouse mentally, spiritually, emotionally, if there's some odds there, chances are you're not going to be connecting physically. It is all intertwined. It all comes together. Um, and all of it is one flesh union. This union is total and complete. There's no longer I and you, but we and us. Now, as a side note, I just want to say something. Uh, I, one thing I just don't understand about professed believers, you know, Paul gives instructions in 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 14, that those who come to a faith after the fact should not divorce their unbelieving spouses. Um, this, again, shows God's high value of the marriage covenant. But many think that this gives them a green light to marry unbelievers, to date unbelievers. Paul makes clear in 2 Corinthians 6, 14, do not unequally yoke with unbelievers. How can you say that you and your spouse are of the same mind, have the same goal, are going in the same directions, are one flesh, when your life is dictated by the word of God and theirs is not? When living and glorifying God is or should be your ultimate goal, but it isn't your spouse's, how can you say you can become one flesh? I don't understand why Christians can't get this straight and why they go against the clear teachings of Scripture on this. I guess the only explanation is they're more concerned with satisfying their flesh rather than the Spirit. Our last verse, verse 25, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. 
we've, we've looked at the purpose of marriage, companionship. We've looked at the God's sovereignty in marriage. And we've looked at the design of marriage. And verse 25, it ends this, this kind of interesting way to end the narrative, isn't it? It portrays Adam and Eve as naked and being unashamed. Um, but this portrays their perfect unity. It was not about their sexual organs, but rather a highlight of their perfected state and of their unification. They had nothing to hide from each other, and their relationship was a perfect model of unity, openness, and trust. There is no more of a vulnerable state that you and I can be in than of nakedness, right? You all had that dream. <laughs> nakedness is a, is a form of vulnerability. Marriage places both parties in a vulnerable state. Don't believe me? Ask someone who's been divorced. It requires trust. When a couple say their wedding vows, they are making a lifelong commitment to place themselves in the care of the other person and to care for them in return. This is by God's design. One of the most important foundational stones of any good marriage is that of trust. And it's no wonder that once trust is broken in a marriage, everything else crumbles. Paul Tripp again says, quote, trust is readily given, easily broken, and costly to restore, end quote. You simply cannot have a healthy marriage, a healthy relationship with someone whom you do not trust. Now, what is interesting is that Adam and Eve don't even know each other. They don't even know each other. And yet, they are making this covenantal commitment of marriage, basically, to each other. They have not invested any time with each other especially time that it would be necessary for any relationship to build a, a, a trust that would bring them to the point of commitment of marriage. They didn't know anything about each other other than the fact that God had brought them together, that God had made them from each other, for each other. Now, this highlights something else. They had a perfect relationship of trust with God. And that was their basis for this perfect trust in each other. The basis of Adam and Eve's trust in each other is their trust and perfect relationship with God. The strongest basis for trust in any marriage is first built vertically before it is built horizontally. The strongest basis for any marriage, any God-honoring marriage is built vertically before horizontally. The basis that Lily knows and trusts me to provide for her, to, to care for her, to, to love her, to be faithful to her, to not abandon her, is not because I don't want to deal with divorce. It's going to be too much of a hassle. It's not because... Um, I'll lose half my possessions, might not see my kids. It's not because I'm getting older, fatter, and grayer, and dating seems like a nightmare. <laughs> that is not the basis why Lily trusts that I'm going to be the provider, protector, be faithful to her, and not abandon her. Her basis of trust in that is not our relationship, but my relationship to God. Our trust in the Lord and desire to obey and please Him is, and all that we do is the strongest source of trust between a husband and wife any marriage can have. When a man and wife are driven by the fear of the Lord and desiring to honor and please Him in all that they do, that is the strongest source of trust that a spouse can have in their partner. Which brings me to our application. We all know what comes next in the narrative, right? The serpent tempts Adam and Eve not to, not to necessarily distrust each other, but to distrust who? God. Instead of being satisfied, satisfied in his kingdom and his perfect plan, they rebel against God in an attempt 
to be like him and set up their own kingdoms. Then the text says that their eyes, then the eyes of both were open and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Genesis 3, 7. What changed in their environment? It was still just them. The immediate presence of the Lord wasn't there at that time. Regardless of this, they both became aware of their vulnerable state. Both became ashamed and desired to cover their shame even from each other. In verse 12, Adam blames his wife for his situation. Blames God for giving him this wife. It's the woman that you gave me. What we need to take note of is that Satan's plan to disrupt this unity between husband and wife and plunge mankind into sin did not begin with man's relation to his wife, but man's relationship to his God. He caused them to distrust and take their eyes off of God. And what was the result? I mean, besides sin and death, of course. Distrust and brokenness in their own relationship which will always be the result with sin. When the vertical relationship gets disrupted, the horizontal ones will quickly follow. It is only when God is in his rightful place in our lives that other things will be in their rightful place. It is only when I love God above all else that I will love my spouse as I love myself. The problems that arise in any marriage is not that you don't love your spouse enough. It is that you do not love God enough. If your love for God is not the practical driving force of your life and marriage, then something else will be, and that something else will always be you. A love of self. When God, when Christ is not the center of your life, then you will be. Now you have two people in a relationship striving together to, to trying to pursue their own desires, trying to fulfill their own expectations, trying to set up their own kingdoms. And when this happens, you view your spouse as either a means of establishing your kingdom or an obstacle in the way of it. This is why so many marriages end in divorce. But when a husband and wife are rooted in the gospel and have their foundation in Christ, it is then that God will bring them together as both strive to serve him and set up his kingdom. No matter what state your marriage is in, hear my words. It is only at the foot of the cross where you can come and be reconciled to a God of mercy that you can then show mercy accurately to your spouse. It is only at the foot of the cross where you can experience true forgiveness that you can exhibit forgiveness to your spouse. It is only at the foot of the cross where you can know patience, grace, unconditional love from a God that you deserve at least from that you can display these things to your spouse. There's no coincidence that God often illustrates his relationship to his people and Christ's relationship to the church with marriage. It is God's design that we more deeply understand our relationship to him through our marriages. These are to enhance one another. A selfless, loving marriage helps believers to better understand God's love for us. And likewise, the ongoing experience and knowledge of God's love for us in Christ provides a model for us to display in our marriages. God is then glorifying when Christian couples grow together in their ability to love and serve one another in this way. These type of marriages are a testimony of God's grace to an unbelieving world. It is ironic that the one person we tend to show the least amount of patience to, the least amount of forgiveness to, the least amount of grace to, is our spouses. 1 John 4.20 says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For who does not love his brother whom he has whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. What is John saying here? You want to know if you truly love God? Look at your relationship with the person nearest to you. Your love for your husband or wife is a very accurate barometer for your love of God. 
Don't tell me that you understand the love of God. Don't tell me that you, you praise God for his forgiveness, that you love the patience and mercy and grace of God, but you refuse to give it to the one person that you're called to give it to the most. I quote Paul Washer when he said, you worship God, you sing songs to God and worship him for these things, but you refuse to give them to others. When it comes to your marriage, whose kingdom does it look like you're trying to build? Who is it that you're striving to serve? And who is it that you're reflecting to your spouse? 